Good morning again. Today we're going to be talking about Jesus as our righteousness. What is salvation? How does it work? You're Christians, right? You're here on Sunday. Can you explain it to me exactly how it works? If I'm a sinner and I rely on Christ as my Savior for my sin and from hell eternal, how can this be accomplished? We often talk about justification, big word, but what does that word mean? We are told that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But where did that come from? Where in the Bible is this taught? Let's go to God's word for guidance and wisdom. Please stand together with me in the reading of God's holy word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, help us to be able to understand and comprehend this deep and profound message from your word from Matthew chapter 5. To examine your scripture and learn of the righteousness of your son, Lord Jesus. Open our eyes to understanding. Enlighten our minds and hearts that we may truly rejoice in the truth of this great word. Amen. Notice the last line in the passage, verse 20. Which says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. At the time of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the top rung of religious society. They were the best. They were the ones that got it right, supposedly. They went above and beyond what the law required. They made obeying the law their number one goal. And they observed the law to the degree which was beyond what most normal people could do. And although I just read from Matthew chapter 5, I'd like to review Luke chapter 18, and I want to read Luke 18, uh, verses 9 through 14. Notice beginning in verse 9, the parable that our Lord gives us are, here are some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In this one verse, the scribes and the Pharisees are described as trusting in self instead of God. God is not a part of their equation. They can be righteous apart from God. Their self-righteousness, that is the religion of human achievement. Jesus is telling this story to a crowd that included self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus... God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. 
Now, this is an exercise in futility of a self-righteous man. As a Pharisee, he was considered to be the most religious person in his society. In his own mind, he was convinced that this is true, that he had it made. He wasn't thanking God like he was, that he wasn't like other people. He was bragging that he went beyond the behavior of the other people and fasted twice a week. Now, you should know in the Old Testament, it only required the observant Jew to fast once per year. And he was doing it twice per week. So he was doing it 103 times more than God required. On the other hand, the tax collector is described in verse 13 as standing afar off. He was afraid to come near. He would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now there's the contrast. The least esteemed man in Jewish society was a tax collector because he was a Jew who worked for Rome and he exacted taxes from his own people for the foreigners of Rome. He was despised by his society as a traitor and he had forsaken his loyalty, his nationalism, his religion for money. This tax collector, standing afar off, ashamed of his failures to follow the law, beating on his breast, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In verse 14, Jesus gave the point of the story. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus tells us a story in front of the scribes and Pharisees, and they had to be grinding their teeth at that moment, that a bad man was justified and a good man was not justified. Now, the average person who reads Luke 18 wouldn't understand it because most people think that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And the bad man standing far off, beating on his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is admitting that he is really headed for hell and he knows it. And the contrast is the Pharisee, someone who doesn't extort and doesn't commit adultery and who fasts twice a week and who gives all things, tithes, of everything he possesses, even his cumin and his spices. He's a super religious person. Now, someone just looking at that would say, this is a guy who's on his way to heaven. He's got it right. He's doing everything God asks. But most people in human society believe that you're, if you're good enough, you'll get there, right? There's a scale. And if you're just on the good side of that scale, you're going to make it. But Jesus told a story in Luke 18 that said the very opposite. That the bad person was justified for the repentance and their desire for God. The tax collector did not trust himself. He was seeking mercy. Let's go back to chapter 5. Now our main verse again is verse 20. And Jesus here is saying that if you're going to go to heaven, you have to be better than these religious elite. Now I've asked a lot of people both in the church and, and in the world, and I say, how do you get to heaven? How do you think you get to heaven? Do you believe in heaven? And they'll say, well, you have to be good. And I'll say, well, how good do you have to be? And they say, well, very good. And I say, well, how good is very good? And they say, well, very, very, very good. But the most religious people in Israel, the very best people, according to that religious society, no, there is no possible way they can enter into the kingdom of heaven based on their goodness. 
And the worst of Israel society, a tax collector, a trader, went home justified. Which poses the question, how good do you have to be to get into heaven? What, what is the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? And this is precisely what Jesus is trying to teach here. The marvelous truth about the mystery and the richness of God's mercy. Jesus was teaching about true righteousness. The only kind of righteousness that God wants. In the Sermon on the Mount. And his teaching was extremely paradoxical. His teaching was very different from that of the Jewish leaders. They were always dealing with the external obedience. But Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. And he was so very different that the people felt he must just be another revolutionary, just a radical mob leader. They thought he was another would-be Messiah, like so many others before him. His message sounded like a perversion of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And because of this perception, Jesus felt it very necessary to clarify his relationship to the Old Testament, to clarify his relationship to the law of God. Matthew chapters 1 through 4 established Jesus as the king. It goes through his lineage. It goes through his, his ability to be king because he's a descendant of David. And now in chapter 5, Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of heaven with the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins to articulate the manifesto of that kingdom and what it looks like. And in this sermon, he wants to know that his message is not something new or different. It's not something that is a dramatic change. And he is not rejecting the Old Testament. If anything, he's enhancing it. Instead, he clarifies that he has total commitment to the Old Testament law. And his statement in verse 20 saying that the scribes and Pharisees have not lived up to what God requires. They don't understand what the law is telling them to do. And in these marvelous verses, Jesus assures us that he's totally committed to the Old Testament law, to being correctly interpreted... And he gets it down to the very letters and punctuation, every jot and tittle, every iota. That's every comma, every dot over the letter I. He's, he's committed to God's standard. He says that you've heard said that you should not commit murder, which is an external act. But he says, I don't want you to have murder in your hearts, right? He's not in any way inconsistent with the Old Testament. He's reinforcing it, even making it go beyond external obedience, but describing an internal obedience a desire in the heart to follow the law, and he is fulfilling it. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus extends it beyond external obedience to internal obedience of the heart. In verse 18, Jesus states that the law would not pass away. Nobody could come and do away with it. It had to be fulfilled in every sense. And in fact, he is the one who is in the process of fulfilling it. Note that when Christ came the first time, he began to fulfill the law. He is still fulfilling it at the right hand of God up into and including his second coming. Christ reinforces the preeminence of the law, the highest and best. And it will be fulfilled not only by him dying on a cross, but also from the perfect life of obedience that he lived prior to that. He is the one who fulfills the law. Then verse 19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So he's saying this is not a watered-down set of principles that you can teach. It's you've got to follow the letter of the law both in your external obedience and in your internal obedience. The purpose of God's law was to show that you had to have more righteousness than you could come up with on your own. It was to show your bankruptcy to fulfill that, and that's the purpose. If we look at Galatians, um, Galatians chapter 3, it says, Why then the law? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So the law then was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. The law was a guardian or a schoolmaster or a teacher that taught us what God demanded and how that we could not fulfill that. The law was the perfect standard which would show us our sin. It's a mirror we look into to see ourselves in a true light the way God sees us. And that was the purpose. The law was to show us that we couldn't do it on our own, that even the best, the scribes and the Pharisees, with all their religion and all their trappings and all their ceremony and all their ritual, they could not gain the righteousness required to enter the kingdom. In other words, the law was there almost to frustrate us, to show us our inadequacy. And the law wasn't there to tell us how good we are. It was to show us how rotten we are. And that's why the tax collector in Luke 18 beating on his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, went home justified. Because he responded to that law. He saw his inadequacy, and he had a desire to have the slate wiped clean. This is the theme of the whole sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Beatitudes, true righteousness, the Old Testament law expressed by Christ in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And of course, the religious system of the time was not poor in spirit. It was proud, it was boastful, it was arrogant, feeling that they had arrived spiritually. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. These people weren't mourning. They were blowing the horn of their own self-sufficiency. They were patting themselves in the back, not mourning over their sin, like the tax collector. They were parading before God and announcing to God their greatness. When people would give or when they would give, they would ring bells. Hey, look how much I gave. They were anything but meek. They were boastful. So blessed are the meek did not apply. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They thought they had it. Righteousness, I got that handled. Blessed are the pure in heart. And they were not pure in heart. White on the outside but filthy dead men's bones inside, Jesus says, vile and wretched. Blessed are the peacemakers, and they did not create peace. They took away peace. They laid heavy burdens on the people. They set themselves up above everyone and created a division among the people. And Jesus is running smack dab into the religion of his day, right into the pharisaical legalism that said, a man gets to the kingdom based on his own goodness. And Jesus comes in and loudly proclaims no. And he sets the record straight in the Sermon on the Mount. It is on the recognition of our own righteousness that the law is not established for you to show how good you are. It is established to prove to you how bad you are because of your inability to keep it. And the Pharisees took the word of God 
and they kind of watered it down. They came up with their own system. Well, you know, this is good enough. And these rules are all you really need to worry about. And no one could really keep the law. So they basically changed the law so the bar was so low they could jump over it. And that's the way it works in the world. That's what all humans do. Is we know we can't live up to a standard, so we drag the standard down to where we can meet it. And we try to prove to ourselves that, hey, that's okay. You know, I'm doing as good as the next guy. So if you believe that the standard of the word of God is absolutely true and you don't live up to it, you'll drive yourself crazy with the guilt. And where do you go with your guilt? So you have to lower the standard. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They developed a codification of rules and external acts. They, they themselves could at least attempt to compete, or excuse me, attempt to keep. They did the very best they could with that, and they convinced themselves that if anyone was going to heaven, it was going to be them. In fact, they had a saying in that day that if only two people go to heaven, it would be a Pharisee and a scribe. You see where they were coming from in that society? I mean, you couldn't get any better than them, according to the people. And the average person at this time in history say, well, you know, I can't be as good as a Pharisee. I can't be like a scribe. I mean, those guys study the Old Testament day and night, night and day. They've got every hair split and every fine point memorized. And they know this stuff cold. In fact, most scribes could possibly recite verbatim the entire Old Testament. The average citizen would say, I have no chance. I can't do that. And then he would look at the Pharisee and say, I can't live like that. I can't keep all those rules. I'll never make it to heaven. Those people were so holy. Their whole life was given to the religious and moral and spiritual pursuit. And Jesus says, they're not going to make it. Your righteousness has to exceed their righteousness. And that was a shocking thing to say, both to the scribes and Pharisees who were listening, as well as to the crowd who thought of them as the religious elite. Because they always looked up to the scribes and Pharisees as those closest to God. Matthew 23 gives us a good picture of the external character of their religion. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, and then the outside may also be clean. In other words, you look good on the outside, but your inside's rotten. Jesus is challenging their inability to follow God's true standard. He's calling them out before the people. And he says, your whole system is superficial and inadequate. Now I ask each of you here and those on the live stream to consider your own walk of faith and your own heart in this regard. Because it is easy to get wrapped up in a superficial kind of religion. It eats at us. We are like sheep that has gone astray. And we get caught up in these things. That we go through the motions of prayer. We go through the motions of devotionals or reading our Bible. And we go through the emotions of attending church of a or a Bible study. And life can become superficial. Like the scribes and Pharisees, they had it good on the outside but not on the inside. And that's why when they said to him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus didn't say, tithing your spices. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That is the first and greatest commandment. And the Pharisees loved themselves. They did it on their own. They weren't dissatisfied 
with their obedience, yet true holiness comes out of a dissatisfaction with your obedience to God. When you're dissatisfied with your life, when you're dissatisfied with your faith, when you mourn over your sin, when you cower in a corner as a beggar like the tax collector, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness that you know you can't earn on your own, you turn to God and ask for the grace and mercy of his true righteousness. It is to this issue that Paul spoke when he said, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, that anyone should boast. They boasted because they had their own righteousness. So here they were, scribes and Pharisees, with righteousness that was external, it was partial, it was redefined, the bar's been lowered, and self-centered. And what is the nature of the righteousness that God wants? He wants absolute holiness. He requires absolute perfection. He requires external obedience and internal obedience. And that standard of righteousness was only achieved by one person that ever lived, and that was Jesus Christ. And that he has that absolute righteousness, those perfect white robes against our filthy rags of disobedience. And God says, the man looks upon the outward appearance, but God judges the heart. 1 Samuel 16 says, For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So then you stop to think and you look at some of the biblical characters and you read the Old Testament about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you start to say to yourself, well, I guess they're not going to make it. I mean, Abraham committed a lot of sins, right? How could he ever attain it? He couldn't. He had to rely upon God, the gift of faith, the gift of grace. It says in Hebrews 11, he believed God, and it was counted to him for his righteousness. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. It's a gift of righteousness. Isn't that great? It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. It's a gift, and you don't deserve it, but you're getting it anyway. And if you try to gain your own righteousness, you're going to become lost forever. But if you reach out and take that free gift of faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is offered you. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to external life, eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That righteousness is Jesus. The only way you could be righteous enough to get into heaven is by the Lord Jesus Christ's perfect obedience and that he imputes that to us. We exchange it. We get his perfectly white, spotless robes. He takes on our filthy rags and those sins are punished by the wrath of God on the cross. And Romans 8, 4 says, through Christ, the righteousness required by the law is fulfilled in us. So even though we can't do it, we wear those robes that Christ gives us, and now we can fulfill the requirements of the law and stand before a holy God. God has set a standard we could never attain, but he has then given us the fulfillment of that standard as a gift by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The kingdom of heaven is the sphere of God's blessing now and forever. You'll never enter that sphere 
apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, here we come. We're the religious. We got it all handled. We prophesied and we cast out demons and did wonderful works. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. Their foundation of self-righteousness, like the scribes and the Pharisees, is built on a foundation of sand. When the day of the Lord comes, they will be washed away. With the gift of faith, the mercy of God, our foundation is placed on the rock of Christ. Now the Pharisee and the tax collector had a lot in common. They believed in the God that had revealed himself to Moses. Gracious, merciful, compassionate, tender-hearted. They believed in atonement for sin through the sacrifice of animals to cover the sin. And they believed in God's forgiveness. So what's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? Repentance. It's understanding that you can't do it alone and you can't do it apart from God. The Pharisee has nothing he thinks he has to repent for. He's like the rich young ruler who says, I've kept all the law ever since my youth. They're saying, I'm a good guy. I should go to heaven. The tax collector says, be merciful to me. He's saying, God, please apply your atonement to me. He understood the wages of sin is death. He understood the wonderful story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, that God would provide the sacrifice, that Isaac would not be sacrificed, but the, but the ram caught in the thicket would be. This is not a general plea for mercy. He's saying, I am a wretched sinner. I am unworthy to stand near you. I am unworthy to look up toward you. I keep my head bowed. I am in profound agony and anguish. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I need atonement. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus Christ is our faithful high priest. He makes propitiation for the sins of his people. He satisfies the penalty of sin. He satisfies the wrath of God. And that's what this man is crying for. Oh God, please apply this atonement to me. Please make atonement for my sin. That very day, a sacrifice had been made on the altar that he was in there beating his breast. And he pleads that that sacrifice would apply to him. He understood the theology of substitution, imputation, and atonement. He knew he needed a son of David, a root of Jesse. Isaiah 53 says, The suffering servant, the Messiah, would come and bear our iniquities and die in our place. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his sacrifice, we now have peace with God through the righteousness of Christ. Please, O oh God, make that atonement apply to me. May your anger be over. That is the plea of a penitent sinner. O oh God, cease being justifiably, righteously angry with me. May your justice be satisfied through that atonement. God has set the standard, and the standard is faith in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you another story about another Pharisee. He tried to follow all the rules. He tried to be super obedient. He was a super Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And his name was Saul. And we call him Paul. In his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Though I may have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks he has reasons for which he might trust in the flesh, I more. 
Listen, when you talk about a self-centered religion, you want to talk about how good a person can be? I was the best. I was circumcised on the eighth day, required by law. I was out of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Touching the righteousness, which is the law, I was blameless. You might think those are pretty good credentials. If anyone's going to heaven, this guy's on the right path, right? And then what does Paul go on to say? Those things which were once gained to me as a Pharisee, I count them now lost for Christ. Doubtless I call things that I did then to try to maintain that to the law as manure, as dung. The word that's used there is pretty gross. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, I count them all lost. I count them all dung. That I would be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but by faith in Christ, the righteousness which is given to me to God through faith and grace and his mercy. Paul says, I am a living illustration. I am a Pharisee who had all the right credentials, but I count it manure that I gain Christ and have his righteousness. That is what salvation is all about. Is that what you believe? Or are you still among those who are spending their lifetime trying to accumulate merit badges to pin on your filthy rags? Let me wind up our time here with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We get to be the beggar that passes on the good news. That is, in Christ Jesus, he was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, their sins, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. We get to tell the good news. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, through our changed lives. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, Paul says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of the great hymns that's been sung in the church, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look for thee for grace. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We beat our breast. We hope not in our flesh, but in the grace given to us by God. Let us pray. Father, we know our hearts can be fickle and our obedience is poor. Like the tax collector, we hunger and thirst for true righteousness. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We are filthy and we need washing. And we rely on your grace and mercy to wash us. To give us the righteousness that we can never attain by ourselves. Christ's righteousness of perfect obedience. Lord, for those who may have doubts, who may question whether or not they have truly received the gift of righteousness, righteousness, which is given to those who believe, we pray, Lord, that today they might reach out with an empty hand to take the gift 
bringing nothing of their own, seeking no personal aggrandizement, offering not the deeds of the flesh, but as beggars, reaching out an empty hand to receive the gift of righteousness, that they may receive the abundance that you give, the righteousness of Christ that makes our justification possible, exchanging our filthy rags for the spotless robe of Jesus. What a gift. How grateful we are for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.